Hello, my name is Amy Greck, one of the authors featured in The One That Got Away and Hell's Mall Anthologies, and you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. Uh, We open with the guests reading an excerpt from their project and then follow up with an interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I am Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. In this episode, we will spotlight three interviews and readings. Our guest includes G.A. Lingaro, creator-writer of the comic book series Isadora and the Immortal Chains, Angela Sylvain, author of the novella Chopping Chopping Spree, (laughs) and Rhonda Jackson-Joseph, author of the Bram Stoker-nominated essay The Beloved Haunting of Hill House, an Examination of Monstrous Motherhood. Our first interview is with G.A. Longaro. G.A. is the writer of Souls of Magic's Dawn, book one of The Covenant of Souls, whose writing is inspired by authors such as J.R.R. Tolkien, George R.R. Martin, and Anne Rice. Today, G.A. will be talking about issue two of Isadora and the Immortal Chains, currently gathering crowdfunding through Kickstarter. He is reading the opening passages of issue one, which was published last fall by Rubicon Comics. Aerial view of the city of Chicago. Variety of buildings, typical urban location. People bustling to and fro on the sidewalks. Cars driving along the busy streets. It is an early evening. Humans never change. This is a city like any other on Earth, like any other throughout time. People go about their business completely oblivious to the plight of their fellow man, ambivalent to their trials unless it intrudes on their lives, unless it inconveniences them, that is. It is not a lie. I try to speak the truth to humans. Having agency is a bonus on this third day of freedom from my liege, the king in yellow. Men, women, children wander through this city like rats, their minds always on the next reward, never realizing that in the building behind them, a man is having a fatal heart attack. Down the street an alley, a woman is brutally raped. Rome was no different. The people were just as oblivious, just as self-absorbed. The only difference is in Rome, they rarely hid behind any self-created facade of decency. They flaunted their decadence in the face of the brutality that surrounded them. They didn't pretend to care. Hello, everyone. We'd like to welcome G.A. Longaro to HP Lovecast. Hi, G.A. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we'd like to talk to you about Isidora, uh, specifically issue number two, which is currently being kickstarted. So tell us all about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, just to give people an idea, um, I, I'm, I am an author. I did a fantasy novel called Souls of Magic's Dawn, 
Uh, they came out about two years ago. Um, comics has always been something I've always been interested in since I was a little kid, obviously. Uh, so I decided to transition, you know, into doing some comics because it is a little bit of an easier write. I can do it pretty quickly compared to a hundred thousand word novel. Uh, you know, 24 pages of script is, is pretty easy to do, but yeah. Uh, so I did uh, issue one, uh, you know, late last year and now we're moving into issue two, uh, of Isadora, um, and the immortal chains. Um, basically Isadora and the immortal chains is a comic book series centered around the exploits of the central character of Isadora, a woman taken from ancient Rome just before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, uh, to become the herald for the King in yellow, which I'm sure people uh, that listen to this podcast would recognize uh, that name. Uh, for the past 2,000 years, she served this role coming to Earth periodically with the task to find and rapture souls um, through insanity, uh, bringing them to lost Carcosa. Um, so at the start of the series, we find Isadora freed herself from her master and used the powers given to her as she chooses. Uh, this choice is to punish not only the wicked, but to also protect the innocent. Uh, she's also on a quest to take down the machinations of the duality of one of the great old ones, Tiog. Um, and just to give people an idea, I'm like I said, people since they're Lovecraft people, they're gonna know these names. Uh, <laughs> most people I talk to don't know these names. Uh, but this there's a little bit of a spin here on how I'm doing it to where it's like this is not a pastiche uh, of Lovecraft. It's more me taking the mythos and the elements of Lovecraft and putting my own spin on them. Very, very cool. GA, what was the catalyst for the comics? I we go back to the original yeah. Uh, issue. Yeah, yeah, sure. If I had to be honest, the Kalos' sparked idea was the name Isadora itself. Uh, being Italian, I have a healthy fascination with uh, ancient Rome. And when I was writing Souls, uh, the novel, I searched for a female Roman name. Um, Isadora like kind of just jumped off the page when I saw it, and I immediately fell in love with the name. So in the comic, the character of Isadora is somewhat of an Elseworlds take on the Isadora from my fantasy novel. Um, they're both sorceresses. While not quite the same characters in entirely different worlds, they're both struggling uh, with like teachers and mentors that did, that did help them. Uh, achieve great power, but it also restrained them from their highest potential. Um, so how does this play into the comic? Uh, well, when I began contemplating about making a comic, I had a few ideas in mind. Um, I already knew I wanted to have Lovecraftian elements in it, and that's that's all I had. So perhaps I may have a different brainstorming structure than most writers, but for me, I needed a title that would kind of roll off the tongue, uh, something that feels epic. Yeah. Um, so I just I just finished watching the movie. I don't think I was familiar with it, uh, based off a book as well, Mortal Instruments, uh, City of Bones. No of it, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the movie was not that great of a movie, but I, I, I like watching some of these movies. And as I'm bored, I'm like, hey, you know what? Let me pop this thing on. So, although the movie itself wasn't great, uh, the author Cassandra Clare had something with that title, that book, uh, "Mortal Instruments: City of Bones." I just like the way "Mortal Instruments" sounded more uh, uh, specifically. Um, so I knew there was going to be immortals in in my kind of world. So images from the movie, there was these like these giant chains and mechanisms were still kind of fresh in my head, uh, and it came to me like immortal chains i like the way that word immortal chains the way that word sounded i'm like this sounds cool and then i started thinking about my book and i'm like isadora so there's a little bit of alliteration there with isadora and the immortal chains uh and with both characters being sorceresses and bam there it was uh isadora and immortal chains i go like and that kind of sparked the genesis of the world building it's like like that's why i feel i'm like different than i don't know if any writers go through this but it's like a lot of times people it starts with a character or a certain archetype or, or a certain plot element to me it's like the title like that's what started it for me <laughs> we're sitting here thinking yeah before we can start <laughs> our, our essays i'm i know for me i have to have the title otherwise i i feel like i'm not focused but, but you know in yeah. the world i think roger corman that's how he started was i have the title and the poster you need to make a movie around this <laughs> there you go <laughs> so you hinted at it earlier that your comics will 
a little bit different. It's not a pastiche of the, you know, right. Lovecraft mythos. You're kind of doing your own thing with it. So if you can elaborate on it, what, what makes Isadora kind of stand out from other uh, Lovecraftian comics? Yeah, yeah. So all we know, Lovecraft mythos has grown, you know, leaps and bounds since Lovecraft first wrote, you know, his first novels. Uh, writers and creatives since have expanded the mythos in extraordinary directions. I mean, I, the last thing I saw, the one thing that really stuck in my head, which really got me kind of really back into Lovecraft was True Detectives, that first season of, of True Detectives, where they had the King, the King in Yellow uh, was in that. If people aren't familiar with this, uh, H, HBO, I think it was, HBO series called True Detectives. Um, and it was a modern time thing, but then they had elements of the King in Yellow uh, in that. And that kind of like kind of sparked my imagination uh, with Lovecraft again. Uh, but one of the consistent elements in many of them is for me is the lack of heroism and hope. Um, <laughs> most usually end in horrendous tragedy. Uh, and they highlight, you know, how small and insignificant humanity is in a greater cosmos, which is a really cool element. And I know that's a, what really draws people out into Lovecraft too, is this extreme horror and just how small we are in the greater, you know, uh, uh, universe. But I, I like the idea of possibly, you know, having a spark of heroism in it because to me when you think of heroes when you think of the classic cape and cowl heroes you know of, of dc comics and marvel and we know where to me sometimes maybe there's a little too much hope there <laughs> but that's what makes those comics work those kind of characters work is the fact that they inspire hope and 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 they at all costs try to help even if they're not the perfect of characters they true try to uh, to help out so even if it comes from a form of an imperfect and you know, maybe kind of transgressive character, which Isadora is. So if you guys kind of think like I do relate it to when, you, when I describe the comic book, I say think Silver Surfer meets Lovecraft because she's a herald uh, and the way he broke away from Galactus is similar to what she does with uh, the King of Yellow. Um, the way her character kind of does her stuff is more like a ghostwriter or a punisher kind of character which is much more transgressive and they do not mind killing or or doing whatever they have to you know to to accomplish their goal but what she's doing now is when she came or when she was working with the king in yellow basically because the old ones don't care about humanity at all it doesn't matter whose souls are taken innocence bad people good people it doesn't matter just you know kill whoever you want uh, with her, she decided to now, since she's broken away, which is still an element, I haven't realized how it happened, but it's, it's coming. Uh, <laughs> but the way she, since she broke away, she decided to use her powers to um, still punish the wicked, but she's going to protect the innocent as well, because she kind of wants to rejoin humanity uh, again, because she's, she was taken away, uh, you know, during uh, times of Rome in the past 2000 years, she's been kind of this otherworldly immortal uh, being rather than a part of humanity. So I think she wants, she wants to come back into the world and be a part of it again and, and try to help because she feels something's been missing uh, from her with that. So it, it's cool for me to see maybe a character who not only wields great power of her own, but is also using the powers of these unstoppable and unimaginable entities that can kind of snuff us out, you know, in a heartbeat. Um, so th that's why I think what stands out about it is that we're, we're going to still have that horror and, 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 you know, um, scary feeling that Lovecraft brings, but at the same time, have this character that, that can kind of be a spark of, of hope uh, in the middle of it all. And what are you most proud of with this series? That one's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It's For me, this is my third campaign now, and it just got uh, uh, fully funded two days ago. Uh, and I'm luckily because this doesn't happen to a lot of people i'm three for three with campaigns and that that's not something that a lot of people can say when they just start and i'm like extremely lucky with it so for me just the fact i was able to put together a comic write the script hire artists run a campaign and then fulfill without ever having made a comic in my life 
that alone is like a huge accomplishment. And all my pride lies just in that to where I, I don't even think about like, what about the book makes me proud? It's like just the fact that I, it happened, you know, that, that that's like the biggest sense of pride I had. So it's hard for me to narrow down something of pride in the comic itself. Uh, I will kind of look at it to where it's kind of up to the reader to decide now, since it's just coming out and it's just coming out there, but perhaps as the series continues uh, and the world grows along with the characters, maybe I'll be able to answer that one a little bit better. Well, as the series grows, um, what are you hoping ultimately to accomplish with Isadora? Well, the one trend I've noticed in indie comics, and again, this is not a blanket statement, but it's just a trend I've seen in, in a lot of the areas of indie comics. Uh, people are out there kind of like, they're trying to put out these like kind of big 80, 120 page graphic novels. You come up with a character, come up with a story, and it's a one shot. You mm-hmm. know, beginning end is in this graphic novel. Uh, and that's what you get. And maybe when they do the next campaign, they might bring that character back or they're going to move on to another character or another story. You know what I mean? Maybe it's because of my, you know, novel background and, and the fantasy novel uh, that, that I do. Um, I like epic stories and I like deep world building uh, and the ongoing tales that with the people that are inside of this universe. Uh, so my goal is for this universe to expand out, adding more characters, more stories, uh, and make it truly an immersive world uh, where a reader can lose themselves in. I can picture uh, this world in my head. You know, I want it to be like, to be able, like someone who, who knows like a streaming series. I'd love to see this like on, on Netflix one day, you know, or, or, or Hulu or whatever. You know what I mean? I, I, I see it as a series in my head, you know, and, and that would be a real dream come true for me is. And so I want it to be something that kind of give that, uh, you know, what's going to happen next kind of thing. And, and the world keeps growing and growing every time they read it. And to me, that's what really keeps a reader. I know people want, you got always as a writer, you got to, or a creator, you got to sell yourself, obviously, you know, not just the, the, the work. Um, and, and while I do obviously want people to, you know, appreciate me as a writer and, and as a creator, I, I'd actually want them to appreciate the work more. I want them to say, I want to know what happens to these characters. Oh, who are we going to see now? Who's going to, who a new character is going to be? Where is this world going to go? You know, we can have a Lovecraftian Justice League. You know, let's 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 grow this as, as far as we can, you know. And as we uh, near the end of our, our interview, uh, G.A., you mentioned a few moments ago about that. Ultimately, it's up to the reader um, mm-hmm. what they're going to take away. But uh, what would you like the reader to take away from this series? Uh, if I have any influence in that at all, uh, what I do want readers to fall in love or hate. I think people underestimate that. Sometimes, uh, just like in pro wrestling, uh, the heels are are there for a reason. People are just supposed to be booed, and that's where they get the big pop. Sometimes hating a character is just as important as loving a character, too. Uh, so I do want readers to fall in love or hate uh, the characters that I create. So I want them to feel the pain, the sadness, the terror, uh, and the triumph uh, that, that along with these characters. And I want them clamoring to see where the story goes next. Um, unlike novels, I mean... You know, novels are serial in nature, depending on a story like something like Harry Potter, for example. Comics have more of that episodic feel, like you're watching a TV show, that uh, tune in next week kind of feel. Uh, I remember that kind of stuff as a kid. That That's what I grew up. I'm an 80, 80s kid. You know, I grew up with that next week, you know, coming next week. And you had to wait next week for the next show to come out, you know, and stuff like that. And I know streaming has kind of taken that away with binging, uh, but I've noticed a lot of them are kind of coming back to that once a week format, making people anticipate the next episode. Uh, or in this case, for comic book, be an issue. So that's where I think I want the reader to be. I want the reader to read an issue, enjoy what they read, and then say, I can't wait for the next issue to come out. I need, I need to know what happens. I need to know what happens. Um, and give it that episodic kind of feel. Well, GA, c- again, congrats on having Thank issue number two successfully uh, funded. But I do know that the campaign is open for a couple more weeks. So yep. we do hope folks do check uh, your campaign out on Kickstarter and also your other work as well. So 
uh, wishing you the very best. Thank you so much for popping on the uh, HP Lovecast to, to chat and talk about Isidora. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. It's much appreciated. Welcome back. Our next transmissions guest is Angela Sylvain. She has written a number of short stories which have appeared in a variety of magazines and anthologies. Her primary genres include horror, science fiction, fantasy, and young adult. She is a member of the Horror Writers Association, Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, and Pikes Peak Writers. A self-proclaimed cheerful goth, Angela talks about her first book, Chopping Spree, a rewind or die novella published by Unnerving Books. They exited into the mall's second story, careful to let the door shut quietly behind them. The normally lively space was dark, lit only by the lights that dotted the pillars along the metal railing that circled the second floor overlook. The sound system blasted the killing moon the song echoing through the cavernous emptiness and making Penny want to smash the speakers. They crept past the dark and vacant stores, peering through the caged entrances. The shadows between island displays and racks of merchandise seemed to shift and sway, any of them potentially hiding the killer. Penny knew she couldn't afford to fall behind, but she was paralyzed by fear. Her skin crawled under the invisible gaze of the man she was sure waited around the next corner. A rustling sound, just audible beneath the music, pulled her attention behind her and she turned. A hunched figure rifled through a large backpack at the base of a pillar 50 yards back. Focused on his task, he hadn't noticed them. Hurry up or we're leaving you, they called. Shut up, Penny whispered, but it was too late. The wolf man stood. The light from the pillar acted as a spotlight, illuminating the matted fur and sharp fangs of his mask and glinting off the butcher knife clutched in his hand. Today we are talking to Angela Sylvain, author of Chopping Spree, her debut novella. Angela, it is wonderful to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here. So Chopping Spree, tell us all about it. What's its pitch? What's its plot? Well, Chopping Spree is about Penny, a spoiled but lonely teenage girl who takes a job at a trendy clothing store in an 80s-inspired mega mall. And at the start of her shift, she runs into a strange man in a wolf mask ranting about hunting pigs. And then once she's at work, she notices her co-workers all wearing a strange symbol they won't explain. When they invite her to stay after closing to party in the store, we all know, mistake, but she doesn't know, she agrees, wanting some quality time with her BFF and her crush. But the night turns bloody when she discovers a mortally wounded boy and finds out a killer is loose in the mall with them. Ooh, sounds good. So Angela, what was the catalyst for your novella? Well, um, the 1980s were my formative years. I, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the 80s, and that was really the time period that inspired my love of horror. 
I was also a latchkey kid, as many of us 80s kids were, and I had relatively little supervision and HBO. So I basically Uh watched (laughs) whatever I wanted on TV, Halloween, Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street, you name it, all the good ones. Um, And in addition to that, I hung out at the mall with my friends a lot. That was a big part of my life. Um, And so when I think back to that time, horror that was like the time when horror for me was scary but also really fun and campy it had kind of a certain style to it and that's part of why I've always loved the rewind or die series from unnerving books because they really capture my love for 80s horror and they're just really fun to read so when I heard they were looking for manuscripts for their rewind or die series I knew I had to try that was the perfect fit for me and then of course my brain went to slashers and malls and love of the 80s and so basically chopping spree is kind of my tribute to those things that I love it it definitely comes out in the text I've been reading along in the book it's definitely got that you know 80s retro wave aesthetic to it without it being a period piece that's kind of what's a little different about it because it's contemporary novel but you know they're going for the the retro feel hey this is a retro mall so that's really inventive well and i think that's in keeping with um the trend that we're seeing today Mm -hmm. of that kind of retro but it's more contemporary absolutely so because this is kind of a a retro novel um so what do you think uh makes chopping spree stand out from other novellas of a similar genre I mean, I think there's a couple things. First off, it's more than just a classic slasher. The story starts out that way, but there's a twist. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but let's say I love a good cult and you'll have to read more to find out about that. So I think that sets it apart a little bit. The other thing that kind of happened as I was writing on it, writing it is sort of a commentary on the dichotomy of the 80s. So, you know, I think in the 80s, everything looked fun and perfect on the surface, but in many ways there was like this rotten underneath. (laughs) Um, And as a kid, I didn't really have to face the bad stuff, right? I was too young. I was too busy talking on the phone and wearing neon and like jamming to Cyndi Lauper. But that during that time period, we had like the Challenger explosion and Iran Contra, the AIDS epidemic, all that was happening too. And so that sort of inspired me to play with that dichotomy of the fun 80s on top and then this rotten underbelly underneath, which contributes to the plot. And then lastly, one kind of fun thing I did was just decide to include a playlist. You know, as I was writing the book, I was thinking of the 80s songs that I love and what would be playing at the mall while all these things were happening. So it's kind of like my soundtrack to the movie of Chopping Spree, and you can read along to listen to that in your mind, and it's also available at the back of the book. Oh, I love that. I love that. Because it it's a way to connect with the writer. Oh, yes. Yep. Uh, so, sorry, folks off screen. I'm showing uh, Michelle the, uh, the, the Chopping Spree playlist on page 185 oh, in the great. novella. Of course, they're all classics that you love. She loves Echo and the Bunnymen. Well, and David Bowie, Oingo Boingo. (laughs) If you want to know more, get the book. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Well, with that in mind, what would you say you're most proud of about the novella? I think I'm really proud of the characters. Um, One of the things that can sometimes be irritating about old school slashers and that I kind of have to excuse when I'm watching them sometimes is that the characters can be kind of one dimensional and predictable. You know, you've got like the good girl, usually the final girl who lives. You've got the promiscuous teens who always die and so on. So in Chopping Spree, I really tried to play with those tropes and flush out all the characters in unexpected ways. And there's actually been a couple of reviews that mention that, which is exciting because I was sort of trying to do that. Um, And they say the book is like a slasher, but without the weird sexualization and characterization. So that's something I'm proud of. That's great. So what's something important that you learned or discovered while writing Chopping Spree? Well, I didn't have to do a lot of research at, about malls or the 80s. That I had <laughs> a lot. I was like, lived it. I got it. Personal so, experience. Yeah. yeah, personal, lived experience. Um, so really what I learned was just about my own ability to bring something Um, to fruition. You know, this is my debut novella. So, and I've had a lot of success with short stories, something I'm pretty good at. Um, But longer works can be intimidating for writers, right? To do that standalone book is a little scarier. And I think that was true for me too. But when I saw something I thought was a good fit, I decided to put myself out there. I pitched it. Um, Unnerving liked my pitch and they said, write it. I wrote it fast I, for me, about two months. I wrote and edited the entire thing. Um, so it was really just a confidence booster. What I've learned is that if I put my mind to it, I can do it. Um, you just have to try, right? Don't let things intimidate you, um, which I kind of hope other writers remember too, because those of us who are writers and any kind of creators really know that that imposter syndrome will get you and that lack of confidence will crush you. So I, that's kind of what I learned is like, it's worth it to go for it. And it's really gratifying when you create something that you love. So just do it. Mm-hmm. And would, what would you say is the main thing that you did want to accomplish with this story? I think, you know, it was a confidence booster, but was there other things that you really wanted to try and accomplish? Sure. Um, really, I, my goal was just to write something that made people feel like I used to feel writing an 80, watching a good 80s slasher. I wanted the reader to get caught up in the action of running around that mall with a group of screaming teenagers and just not be able to put the book down. You know, ultimately, I wanted the story to convey a feeling of the 80s and be scary, but in a fun, campy way. I just wanted to write something that's going to be fun to read and make you have that slasher feeling. I I would say, again, 50 pages into a 100-page novella, But from what I've read so far, you've definitely succeeded, uh, which is very awesome. So super congrats, super congrats on your debut, debut novella, uh, Angela. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, those are all of our questions. So we wish you continued success. We'll look forward to more short stories, novellas, and novel proper down the road, hopefully. Yes, hopefully. I will keep you posted. (laughs) thanks for having me thank you so much for being on the show
Welcome back. Our final transmission is from Rhonda Jackson-Joseph. Rhonda is a professor of the English department at Lone Star College, and her research interests include the horror genre, intersections of race and gender, popular culture, and the literary and film criticism. Today, she, she is talking about her Bram Stoker-nominated essay, The Beloved Haunting of Hill House, an examination of monstrous motherhood that was part of the Bram Stoker-nominated nonfiction anthology, The Streaming of Hill House, Essays on the Haunting Netflix Adaptation. The Beloved Haunting of Hill House, an examination of monstrous motherhood. A mother's love for her children is often portrayed as a positive expression of nurturing and caring for vulnerable offspring. This appropriately termed mommy myth is described by Kira V. Williams. Women, according to this myth, were incomplete without children and good mothers devoted their entire beings, body, soul, time, and mind to their children. Mothers dote on their children, lavishing them with affection and sacrifice the things they need and desire in order to care for the offspring. Adrian Rich further asserts, mother love is supposed to be continuous, unconditional, love and anger cannot coexist. Female threatens the institution of motherhood. What this depiction often omits is the societal issues and circumstances that can distort these feelings and twist them into fear and acts of violence by mothers toward their children. Renee Lee Gardner affirms, in the urgency of this moment, Morrison exposes the trauma of motherhood in a society where not all mothers can meet the criteria set by these ideological constructs for that role. The lived experiences and the impacts of these experiences for women who lie outside the lens of privilege that motherhood is often viewed through is largely ignored. These omissions can lead to a faulty and unwarranted designation of monstrosity in cases where the true monsters are never named. For today, we are joined by Rhonda Jackson-Joseph, the author of the Stoker-nominated essay, The Beloved Haunting of Hill House, that appeared in the Stoker-nominated book, uh, The Streaming of Hill House, Essays on the Haunting of the Netflix Adaptation, edited by Kevin Wetmore. So, hi Rhonda, welcome to the show. It's so great to hear you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So, high level overview. Tell us about your essay. What is it about? Um, so my essay is basically a comparison of, of uh, Sethi who is a character in Toni Morrison's Beloved and the character Olivia Crane, who is the mom in a Netflix adaptation of The Haunting of um, Hill House. And so the things that struck me as I was watching Olivia Crane was how much she reminded me, uh, not just of myself, but how much she reminded me of Sethi Suggs and that she was a mom who loved her kids, but there were all these other influences, um, external, internal, medical, spiritual, um, you know, psychic, uh, that kind of intervene in that, and, and how these women would be uh, considered not great moms, uh, and so I thought that they deserve some attention, um, you know, so that we can kind of talk about, well, hey, they actually were great moms, but before you jump to label them as monsters, let's talk about these, these circumstances that kind of led them to the things that they did. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, uh, part of the catalyst for the essay would be uh, Kevin's call uh, 
for essays, but was there, there any other reasons how this essay came about for you? Well, I always keep a lookout for certain people's calls and Kevin's are one of those, you know, and so I'm always like, ooh, ooh, what is he working on? Um, and so I had seen the series and I absolutely loved it. Uh, and I knew that I would probably uh, want to write about it. It was just one of those series is that, you know, you watch it, you go, oh my gosh, I have to write about it. Um, there's something there. And, uh, and so when it came time to submit their proposal, I thought, like not just because beloved is like the book the classic but because these women were really similar even though they were in different time periods they were from different races different you know socioeconomic statuses uh, they were very much the same um and so that's what kind of precipitated the idea that we're going to write about the moms so what was something important that you discovered or learned while you were researching or composing the essay uh, well, one thing that I, I noticed that I kept bringing my attention back to was the idea of um, this um, haunted house trope in horror, where the domestic sphere traditionally uh, is, is the house. And so it's penetrated by these influences, right? And so I thought it's really something how these houses that these women inhabited were actually going in parallel forces of destruction as the women themselves were breaking down. And so you see that the house where Stephanie Suggs was angry, just like she was angry. Um, things weren't working uh, in Olivia Crane's house. You know, everything was going to, you know, just going to pot, like as she, you know, degraded the house did too. And I thought this is really fascinating, but I, I was kind of hoping that, you know, we could get away from that, you know, like the haunted house as the defiled feminine, right? Um, you know, but in horror, it works as such a, a huge trope. It's one that we see all the time uh, and done well. It's not very intrusive, but, um, but this is the thing that I kept going back to was, oh, here we go again, the defiled feminine. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, I think Rhonda, you know, I studied about city symphonies in the 1920s and they must, ex almost exclusively are filmed outside. So your comment about, you know, the house as a domestic sphere really kind of resonated and I was like, oh, that's such a great observation. Uh, so I'd love to hear what element or attribute are you most uh, proud of with this essay? Uh, well, okay, besides the fact that it made it onto the final uh, Bram Stoker ballot, I mean, that to me is just the biggest thing, especially for academia. Uh, you know, like I, I was like, wait a minute, we have won, even though the essay didn't win, uh, you know, getting something academic even on there, like in this short, you know, like I'm going, this is short nonfiction, everything else here is an essay, and then here's my little academic essay, all academically, just academicing there with them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that was huge. Um, but another thing that I'm really excited about is because it made its way onto the ballot, um, I think that more people read it. Than, than I would have thought. And so I think that um, its reach means that these marginalized mothers actually got, you know, lots of eyes on them. Uh, 
And I'm hoping that, you know, it kind of precipitated a conversation that we might need to have, you know, about how we treat mothers, how we don't make sure that they have all the resources that they need, um, and how things like mental illness uh, kind of get um, vilified. It makes them turn, and they're turned into villains. And so rather than help them, we are always wanting to kind of shove them away and say, oh, they're monstrous. Um, so hopefully that that's what this, that will help facilitate this conversation. I would say, so our final question, Rhonda, you kind of sort of uh, answered it already because, you know, your essay was able to be proliferated out there, but what's like the main takeaway that you want folks to have with this essay? Um, I want people to have with this essay the idea that, um, that some people are struggling. Uh, we might be struggling with different things. Um, you know, these these moms happen to be uh, struggling with mental illness. Um, and Olivia Crane had like uh, migraines, right? She seemed to also suffer from depression. Um, Sathya Suggs definitely suffered from depression and trauma from being enslaved. Uh, I hope that people take away that sometimes we are all suffering in some type of way. And it would be really great if as human beings, we try to understand that and try to help each other uh, rather than just kind of shove everyone off into the garbage bin. I think that as, as a society, we're too quick to just throw people away, um, especially when there are things that are not their fault. Now, this is different from people who are just purposefully nasty, right? That's a whole different thing. But I mean, people who need help, um, it's different. I think that we should try to help each other um, and, and understand that there are things that are happening that we have no idea about in most people's lives. And so we should be a little more willing to understand those things before we jump to judgment. Uh, totally agree with you, Rhonda, and I mean, that's very commendable, and, and hopefully uh, more and more people will read your, your essay, um, the fact that it has been a Bram Stoker nominated, we're very excited, and, and of course, we're, we're appreciative that you were also part of our Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference a couple of years ago, so. And nice. this year. And this year, so it's, it's obviously, it's, it's wonderful. Um, to have you kind of represent us as academics as well. So very appreciative. And again, congratulations uh, to you on your Bram Stoker nomination. So. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I'm always excited to come out to Anne Radcon. I'm already trying to think about what am I going to do next year? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rhonda. Well, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about your essay. We wishing you continued success and we are definitely looking forward to seeing you next year at the conference. Okay, yes, sounds good. And that concludes the final transmissions for this episode. We would like to thank Amy Greck who provided the opening bumper for this episode. She has over 100 stories and you can find her recent story, Cold Comfort, in the collection The One That Got Away, Women of Horror Anthology Volume 3. We wish her much continued success with her various writing projects. For upcoming events, 
For episode 41 of the HP Lovecast podcast, we'll be digging into Arkham House's Cthulhu 2000, a Lovecraftian anthology edited by Jim Turner. We'll be discussing F. Paul Wilson's story The Barons and Ramsey Campbell's The Faces at Pine Dunes. This episode will post Monday, July 5th. Continuing our exploration of Wilson's writing, on episode 11 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we'll be reviewing and analyzing the filmic adaptation of The Keep that was released theatrically back in 1983, directed by Michael Mann and starring Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, Jürgen Prochnow, Alberta Watson, and Ian McKellen. This episode will post Sunday, July 18th. And then finally, on HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we'll be spotlighting two or three special guests as they discuss new or upcoming projects and also providing some brief readings. This episode will post on Saturday, July 31st. Upcoming in August, we're really excited for our August programming, which will be devoted to examining all things The King in Yellow. We'll be exploring James Chambers' recent anthology under Twin Sons, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, published by Hippocampus Press. We'll be also interviewing a few of the contributors for the anthology, and also looking at a graphic novel adaptation of The King in Yellow. As a reminder, our episodes post on the first Sunday, third Sunday, and last day of the month. And if you are interested in being a guest on Transmissions, please contact us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.